I'm Amanda Lippman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our guest this week is Jessica Hoosman. She is the editorial director of Vote Beat, a pop-up newsroom focused on combating the shortage of local reporters covering voting and election administration. Jessica and I talk about misconceptions about voting in the United States, including the idea, (laughs) falsely, that voting is a constitutional right. The founders wanted to deny a lot of us the right to vote. What's truly American is the fight for the right to vote. And that's a fight that unfortunately is far from over. Jessica grew up in Texas and she reports from Dallas. So we go deep into the GOP's efforts to restrict Texas voting even further and into Democratic lawmakers' attempts to stop them or make the best out of a shit sandwich. And we get into the decline of local journalism and how VoteBeat is trying to fix it. But before we get to my conversation with Jessica, I do want to talk a little bit about what's happening in D.C. right now. now in honor of my currently on parental leave co-host, Faz Shakir, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the massive infrastructure bill, a historic $1.2 trillion bipartisan package that covers funding for things like public transit and roads and water, clean energy, broadband and the electric grid. Nancy Pelosi has said she's not going to take up this legislation until it also comes with the massive Democratic reconciliation bill that includes things like childcare funding, universal pre-K, and expansion of healthcare, and all the other stuff that we know we desperately need. We'll see what happens in the Senate with the reconciliation bill. Schumer is kicking it to the committees to write their priorities. They've got to pass a framework first to go through a bunch of parliamentary procedure. But I will say it's the first time I've watched what's happening in DC and been at least a little optimistic that we could have some incredible historic progressive legislation coming out of the Biden administration, hopefully by the end of this calendar year. So if you're keeping a close watch on it, get excited. Things could get really good for at least a little while. Now, to be clear, it would be so much easier if they would just kill the filibuster and we still need massive voting rights legislation. But at the very least, things like universal childcare could be game changing for millions and millions of Americans. So let's keep an eye on it. With that, let's go to my conversation with Jessica. Jessica, who's been editorial director for Vote Beat, I am so glad to have you on Battleground today. I am really excited to be here. I want to start with a thread that you wrote on Twitter about the bill that is going through the Texas state legislature right now. And you said something that really stood out to me Mm -hmm. in that it makes you very mad when people say that voting is as American as apple pie. Can you explain why that phrase pisses you off? Yeah. I think that saying things like voting is as American as apple pie makes it seem as if this was like a God-given right we all had as America formed from the primordial ooze and we all just vote and everything is great. In fact, this country was founded on the principle that only men of measurable wealth who were white could vote, right? Like the property owner thing is not really true. We've sort of missed in this arc of history that even at the beginning of the country, most white men couldn't vote, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it is not true that voting is an American principle. It is something that we have created for ourselves through continued advocacy and continued violence and continued struggle over time. And so that is American. And I think when we say things like voting is as American as apple pie or voting is a constitutional right, 
The first, I think, is an exaggeration. The second is literally factually inaccurate. (laughs) There is no constitutional right to vote, which is why states can ban people from doing it. That's why they can ban felons from voting. That's why they can ban people with mental disabilities from voting if they choose to or lower the voting age to 16 or raise it to whatever. I mean, there are very few standards set by the federal government for how voting must happen. And so to say that it is a right makes it seem as if there is some law somewhere in our founding documents that says everyone needs to vote, and it doesn't. And all of the confusion that we have now with the lack of standardization across states, the lack of consistent enforcement of voting laws, the lack of even a common definition of voter fraud or election fraud is because there is no inherent voting right in America. We have decided it's a democracy, but that word was actually used by the founders with some level of derision. It was never intended to serve the purpose that it serves now. And so I think that we need to recognize that as we talk about this stuff. You say that landowners was not the original intention for voting. That's actually surprising to me. Can you demystify mm-hmm. that a little bit? The Constitution says nothing about like white landowning males, right? Mm-hmm. The Constitution allowed every state to decide for themselves who the electorate was. And that varied widely from state to state. So in states where people did own homes and that was a way to measure wealth, that was often the case that property owning white men could vote. But in densely urban areas, like, for example, New York City, there are, and still today, very wealthy people who run businesses that have a lot of influence on society that may never own a home. Hmm. That's true today. That was true in 1776. So instead of land owning, it was you had to own a certain number of items. Or instead of property, you could own a business. Or maybe instead of a business or property, because you're simply the son of a wealthy child, (laughs) you get grandfathered in because your father could vote. So for example, there was almost a two-decade period in the late 1700s and early 1800s where anyone in New Jersey who owned property could vote, Mm -hmm. including women, including Black men. If you owned property in New Jersey, there was a 17-year period where you could vote before they restricted it again back to only white males. And then the state of Rhode Island enfranchised Black men in the 1840s, but were one of the last states to sign on to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments (laughs) because they didn't want to enfranchise Irish immigrants. So I think that America has mythologized this struggle for voting rights in this way that is ahistorical and I don't think helps give context to the moment. So White people assume, oh, well, we've always been able to vote. So like this isn't our struggle. It is. There was a really long time where white women couldn't vote and Mm -hmm. where most white men could not vote. And I think that they ignore that this struggle is their struggle, too. And it always has been. And so the racial element here that has been so forced on us by all of these like race baity laws and the very like clear language, it does the exact same thing that, for example, happens often in labor movements, right? Certainly it has become racial. I'm just saying that like white people should have as much ownership over this as everyone else because there was a point in our history where we fought this too. And I think that we have forgotten that the more common thing in American history is not an active voting population 
the common thread that pulls us through American history is someone who can't vote demanding to be allowed to. You're a former history teacher. Can you give us the crib notes version of the major points in which voting rights were won or lost in the last, I don't know, 250 years of American history? It's a bit of an ebb and a flow. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of our country, voting looked much different, right? It usually happened by voice. It usually happened in bars. There was no paper. Everybody just said who they were voting for. And then they all got really drunk and they were probably drunk when they were voting. And that was election. (laughs) There was like no election security whatsoever. As the population grew and more people started qualifying to vote and more states started being added to the union, different things started happening in voting. States had total authority over who they allowed the makeup of the electorate to be. But Congress set those determinations, for example, in territories. Mm -hmm. So when they would make new territories, they would actually enfranchise almost everyone as an inducement to move there. They would remove property ownership requirements. Sometimes they removed race requirements. During this time, you did not have to be a U.S. citizen to vote. Like they used that as an inducement to get people to move there. And then once they did, and once those state constitutions started to get written, they shrank the electorate right back down. So there are moments of real victory in American history that are just like swept back because they realize, for example, in New Jersey, when they removed women and black men from being able to vote, they did that because they thought that women would probably cast more votes for the party that they didn't want to win. So Mm -hmm. they disenfranchised them and came back in line with the rest of the country. So it ebbs and flows in that way. But you can see states as they pull their constitutions into being, they're setting the terms of their electorate. So by the 1800s, everybody has their own state constitutions. Everyone can vote in very different ways. The Civil War brings us vote by mail for the Mm -hmm. first time. Vote by mail has its own very different trajectory. Then the Civil War comes, we get the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as a result of that. And states adopt these with varying amounts of vigor and commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got states that do the thing and want to do the thing, and then you've got the Jim Crow South. And so even though lots of people have now been enfranchised, there are obviously record numbers of Black voters. Black people are being elected to office for the first time. I really... I think it's interesting to look back on photo directories of members of Congress during the Reconstruction era because there were so many Black representatives. And then all of a sudden, there aren't anymore, right? Yeah, because it's a we, very clear on and off switch. On and off. And so it's a turbulent history. And the thing that frustrates me most, I mean, listen, I know that I used to teach high school history. And I know <laughs> that I have been talking about election administration and voting rights and only that for five years. So like I'm uniquely angry about this in a way that no one Uh else should be. But like what makes me upset about the characterization of voting is as American as apple pie is it makes it seem like this was easy. And it puts so much into perspective in terms of like this navel gazy, Mm -hmm. gross focus on like founders intent all the time. You know, like If we were voting as the founders intended. We wouldn't be voting. We wouldn't be voting. And so how can voting be as American as apple pie? Like, it's just not, you know, like 
the struggle for it is. There is a clear line between all of the improvements in our country and an expanded electorate and a more involved electorate. And that movement from like republic run by rich white men to a democracy, more or less, that has a population that is made up of men, of women, of people who identify as neither, of black people, of white people, of all shades of brown people. Like this is absolutely not what the founders intended. No, multiracial democracy was not in the constitution anyway. (laughs) No, not at all. And like you can go back and read the Federalist Papers and you can go back and read the writings of James Madison specifically, who people hold up as the inventor of democracy. He straight up says, if we enfranchise more than the people who are enfranchised now, this country will end. That is how severe he thought expanding the electorate would be. And I think that if we understood that history better, if white people, I'm speaking to myself, understood that like our history is also intertwined here, especially if you're from a lower socioeconomic class, we would be mad about this stuff too. And we've mythologized voting in the same way that we mythologize the Alamo in Texas, like this deeply ahistorical way, and made it so that there is a portion of the population that feels like this is a right that they have to fight for. And there is a large portion of the population that feels like it is a right that they have by birth. Mm -hmm. And that small group of people are right. And the larger group of people are wrong. This is not a birthright. And there is nothing in the Constitution that guarantees it. And so if we don't come to some kind of collective national agreement on this issue and better understand our history and better appreciate this fight, then, you know, I just think that we're not doing the work that we should be doing. Yeah. We shouldn't make people believe that this is something that is given to us and that we're just withholding from a small group of people. That's an incorrect characterization. It's like a massive thing that Americans have created for themselves that people are still fighting to get. And that's what this fight is. Battleground has to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Jessica Hoosman. Welcome back to Battleground. We are talking with Jessica Hoosman from VoteBeat. You touched on this a little bit, I think when I was talking about New Jersey, of the people empowered control the terms of the following elections. And that's what we're seeing now, especially with the Republican Party, who have won control of a majority of state legislatures. They have a number of governorships. They control the terms of the campaigns and the election days, even if they don't actually control the power ultimately on the federal level, why are Republicans setting up this way and such that they want to restrict who can show up at the polls? Mm -hmm. I think that obviously they're just playing to a party of one. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think, for example, that the elections bill in Texas would be what it is or perhaps even exist if Greg Abbott, the governor, was not so worried about getting Trump's endorsement. He has it, but he's still being primaried from the right and he could lose it at any time because that's what Donald Trump does. (laughs) And certainly I think that that's what every Republican legislature is doing across the state. Texas is interesting because our bill is so stupid. Like, (laughs) you know. Yeah, let's talk about it. What makes it so particularly stupid? So if you think about the bills that Florida and Georgia passed, like, they are thematically consistent. And well, let me explain what I mean by that, right? They both are like, we have a lot of vote by mail here. Let's have less vote by mail. Like Mm -hmm. that's the whole point of the bill, right? Texas has so little bit to fall 
that there's nothing that they can thematically do. Like you can't vote by mail in Texas unless you're over the age of 65. Like you can't really restrict that any more than it's been, right? The reason everybody's talking about 24-hour polling in Harris County, which happened one time in one county, and that's all anybody can talk about, like it's going to disenfranchise everyone and their mother, is because that was the only thing left to take. Yeah. Our laws were already so restrictive that they're just fine-tuning the edges in ways that don't make any sense and that election administrators can't figure out how to enforce because they're just making things that already existed weirder rather than creating something new or radically changing something that already existed. So the bill is a mess. It doesn't make sense. There are typos in it. (laughs) It's just like they slapped this thing together so that they could have an elections bill. But there was nothing left to legislate here. And so they did it all on the margins and they didn't engage with the administrative policies that they were changing. And so election administrators have called me and been like, I genuinely don't know how to enforce this. Like, I genuinely have no idea. And they're doing this bill because of Trump and because of the need to sort of capitulate to the big lie of, oh, if this election was fraudulent or stolen, certainly we must do something in rebuttal. But the reason the laws in Texas are so restrictive to begin with is because of a decades-long effort by, in particular, the Republican Party to limit the number of voters who they think would otherwise be Democrats' ability to show up at the polls, which in particular has meant young people, communities of color, new Americans. They are making an assumption here that when more people vote, Democrats win. They are making that assumption. And I think it's a dangerous one to make. Yeah, totally dangerous. This will eventually bite them in the ass. And here's why I think that. Mm -hmm. I think that they lost Georgia because they disenfranchised their own voters. There is just no reason. The polls did not suggest it. The campaigns did not suggest it that both of the Senate seats in Georgia should be held by Democrats right now. The only reason and like the secretary of state in Georgia would say this to you himself. He said it to me looking at me on the night of the runoff while I was (laughs) in the war room with him. He looked at me and he said, Trump did this. Mm. And then he walked away. Like people in Georgia know that Trump completely eliminated any confidence in the vote by mail system. And so his voters chose not to do that. But then in a state where the runoff happens and you vote in it or you don't, and maybe you don't understand why the runoff happened because you already voted for David Perdue in November. Why are we voting again? It's confusing to begin with. And then you add this layer of like, oh, I can't trust the system. Well, fuck that. I'm not voting. And so Democrats vote by mail in way higher numbers than Republicans, which completely does not support any of the political science that has happened so far. There are studies that you can look at in California, in Colorado, in Oregon of partisan impact on vote by mail. And statistically, it doesn't have any. But Donald Trump made it partisan. Mm -hmm. He shifted the whole theory of these studies. If you did that same study in Georgia, I guarantee you'd find a partisan impact. But that's because Donald Trump planted those seeds and then like stood there watering and fertilizing them every day on national television. And so this will eventually eat them alive. And Republicans are starting to say that to me. Hmm. The ones that are a little bit more moderate are like, I don't know what to do. They are going way too far. We're eventually going to disenfranchise our own voters through misinformation. But what do I do right now? 
they're not listening to me. They don't care about what I have to say. Do I go and sacrifice myself yeah. on the altar of this? Or do I stick around knowing that I'm the only sane person here and just keep my mouth shut? Like there are Republicans here that recognize what's happening and are in, frankly, positions I sympathize with. You know, I think that the progressive left's response to those stories, like when you quote people saying that on background because they don't want to be attributed, they're like, you're a wiener and (laughs) you should lay down and die. But from their position, they're like, I'm the only sane person in my party. If I roast myself publicly and get all of these crazies riled up and get voted out, then I really can't do anything. And so... I don't know what the right answer is for them. I don't know what their constituents really expect of them. And I guess we'll see what happens. Nothing good, I assume. Yeah, my gut reaction is like, it seems like you made your bed and I have to lay in it. But I understand that that's a gut emotional response that is actually separate from what they should do if you think long-term strategic. Um, Yeah, and let's take Texas as an example. I mean, I live here, I'm covering it right now. Like the legislators in Texas only are in session for six months every two years. This is not a body of professional legislators. No. Can you imagine being good at a job that you only do for six months once every two years? It is not hugely uncommon that legislation from Democrats or Republicans starts and is introduced as a total shit show because (laughs) no one knows what they're doing. But through the legislative process, especially if it's not red meat issues like the ones we're dealing with now, they can basically work together and it's fine. Like even the National Congress love to point out like, well, the vast majority of bills we pass are bipartisan. And you're like, yeah, because you were naming a post office. Post office, yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. They they meet out. They get through. By the end, the legislation is good. It's coherent. The process has done its job. In this case, the legislation started as a mess. It remains a mess. Mm. Eight months later, we still have legislation where there's subsections that aren't attached to anything and typos and like whole areas where we like have estimated no costs, right? Like due diligence on this bill has not been done. And I think it's because there is a real internal struggle within both of the parties in Texas right now, right? Like there are Democrats that are encamped in Washington They are battling amongst themselves as to whether or not they stay or whether they go back. Like, do they reenter quorum for the second session that Greg Abbott has just called and try and do what they can because this bill is going to pass because Republicans have the numbers anyway? Let's just come back and make it as good as we can because we're going to lose this eventually. And then there are others who are like, no, we're staying here until Congress passes H.R. 1 or H.R. 4, which Mm. frankly, like, good luck. They live in D.C. now, I guess. Like, they're never leaving because that's not going to happen. And so there's that battle. But then there's also this Republican battle where like huge swaths of the legislation were written by think tanks and the legislators don't engage with it. They do not listen to the election administrators who are telling them where the problems are and what will make it difficult and what will be expensive. And then the Republicans who do engage with these folks Mm-hmm. that are open about this. Like there are some Republicans that are awesome at really getting into the weeds of this with you and can explain everything, even if they don't agree with it and trying in their way behind the scenes to fix some stuff. But they're not the ones in leadership positions and they're not the ones that have been placed in leadership positions. They are not the authors of the bill. They have very little say. And so 
I think that when we say like, well, you made your bed and you have to lay in it, like there are people who were in fact elected as moderate Republicans. And if they want to continue being a moderate Republican in Texas, which I would argue we probably need a few more of, then they kind of have to stay in their party. Like Dan Patrick is a vengeful, petty bitch. (laughs) He will take a leadership position away from you. He will punish you and never let your legislation come to the floor. This is the kind of political dynamic we're dealing with here. And so I don't know that there is a right answer for any of these folks. And I think at the end of the day, this bill is going to pass. Greg Abbott has decided he's calling special sessions until it does. He's starting to defund the legislature, which is frankly a constitutional crisis, but here we are. So maybe it is better to quietly work behind the scenes to make it as good as you can before the inevitable conclusion. I don't know. How do Texans feel about this? My viewpoint is through working with Texas Democratic state legislators, you know, run for something, has worked with a number of them, including some of the leaders of this fight. I get a sense from them, at least what they're hearing from their constituents is like, good, we want you to be fighting for democracy. Good, you are doing your job. Is that a collective response across the state on the constituent and voter side? No. Um, (laughs) Cool, 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 cool. Uh, You know, I mean, I think that something that that we need to take into consideration here is that Texas is incredibly gerrymandered, right? Yeah. So, And that's true on the state legislative level as well as the congressional level. Absolutely. And so the representatives who are in D.C. represent districts that are overwhelmingly blue. And so their constituents probably are cool with it. Mm -hmm. But then something that I has always bugged me when people talk about Texas, like, I'm from here. I live here now. Like, They talk about Texas like it's this one place Mm -hmm. where everybody is the same and we're all just crazy and have a lot of guns, right? Like (laughs) that's Texas. And like maybe there are some cows. I don't know. Like Texas is a hugely diverse state. And I don't mean that racially. I mean that economically and like literally geographically, right? Like we've got deep east Texas pinewood forest. We have got high plains deserts up top. We have got cavernous deserts in the west we've got ocean at the bottom in the middle we've got like vineyards and hill country like this state has entirely different populations of people living within it so we've got for example especially along the valley right there are democrats that represent conservative democratic districts Mm -hmm. that are made up primarily of Chicanos living on the border or farmers who have voted Democrat their entire life or live in counties where everyone registers to vote as a Democrat, even if maybe you voted for Donald Trump. These are huge rural counties in Texas that don't have a lot of people, but whose constituents are in contact with these state legislators. Because, you know, if you live in Dallas, the likelihood that you need anything from your state legislator, probably low. Pretty small. Right. But if you live way out and you need state services, you know who your state legislator is. You turn out to vote for that person. You are incredibly in contact with that office. And those are the populations that are not thrilled. They see this as a waste of money. They see this as a waste of time. They see this as them like straight up not doing the job that they feel like they hired them to do. Mm. Like come back 
and do your job is like what they're trying to say to these Democrats. And I don't know that they're wrong in that because every day that you're in D.C. fighting for voting rights is like a day I can't get a hold of your office to make sure that like the subsidy I was promised gets to me or something like that. I hear their concerns and that's valid. And so it's kind of a mixed bag depending on where you are. Dallas loves it. LaSalle County, Texas, not so much. Can you explain what tinkering around the edges would look like? Let's say that Democrats come back and are able to start working with Republicans in some meaningful way. Is there a least shitty version of a shitty voter suppression bill? So a couple of weeks ago for Texas Monthly, I wrote a story that showed that there was a new provision added to the special session version of the election bill that would require people to write on the envelope of their mailed ballot application, either the last four digits of their social security number or their driver's license number under a little privacy flap. Mm -hmm. And if the number did not match what you had on file, your application would be rejected. The problem is that federal law does not allow you to ask for both of those numbers, only one. Mm. And so there are 1.9 million Texans that have one but not both of those numbers on file with the voter registration system. And so if they were to, say, register to vote in 1985, turn 65 many years later, right, and be like, oh, I'll write my driver's license number down here because I've got it in my wallet. And they registered that long ago with their social security number, even though they're the same person, it would be rejected. Mm, Not great. Yeah, not great, right? This is like could affect 1.9 million Texans. That's the data poll for how many people have one, but not both. So there are 1.9 million Texans who, if they register to vote by mail, would have to just like guess Hmm. and like hope for the best. And there's not a clear way to cure that if it's rejected And there is not enough time to register them to vote because the rejection didn't get back to them until the day before the voter registration deadline. Do they get an extension? I don't know. Like, what's the cure process? Can we allow them to cure it or do we just reject it? That's not clear in the bill. And so Republicans that I talked to on the phone were like, that was inadvertent. We didn't realize that was the case. We're going to fix that. Like, next time Greg Abbott calls a special session, that won't be in the bill, right? Which is good. Yeah, I guess you know, take it where you can get it. I'll tell you where I can get it. But there are other huge issues in this bill that have really nothing to do with the headline grabbing, racially problematic <laughs> issues in the bill, right? There are literal problems in this bill. For example, a provision that would require counties to buy voting machines that are currently not being made. Huh. Like the bill is a mess. And so even if Republicans win on all of the headline grabbing shit, there is value in fixing the other stuff. And I think Republicans have demonstrated over the course of the last eight months that they have no interest in cleaning up their own messes. And so if these issues that are going to cost counties millions of dollars that taxpayers Mm -hmm. have to fork over, which Texans care a lot about, let me tell you that, those are worth fixing, right? Maybe we can't stop them from requiring additional forms of ID for vote-by-mail applications, but maybe we can make it so that the vote-by-mail system that does exist actually works, right? Or maybe we can make it so that they don't have to buy machines that are imaginary, right? Like, could we find another security standard that actually exists in the world? Yeah. These are not sexy things. And these are not things that any Democratic legislator that's currently camped out in D.C. is going to make headlines for coming home to fix. But they are really important. 
And I think that people really ignore election administration processes when we talk about voting rights, because Mm -hmm. if you really look at the research and you really look at the numbers, the vast majority of people who are unable to vote, who are disenfranchised, are disenfranchised because of a poll worker making an error. They are disenfranchised because they went to their polling location and a water main broke and there's nowhere to go, right? Like under-resourced and overburdened elections offices disenfranchise people, not out of malice, not because they're trying to, but because they don't have the resources to allow people to vote in the way that they need to vote. And there are so many issues in this bill that would make it harder for everyone in the state to vote, not just minority populations that we're obviously concerned about from a civil rights perspective. Like this would make the bureaucracy around voting absurd. And no one has made an issue of this. The Democrats haven't brought it up. No one has been like, hey, my county doesn't have $8 million to spend on a new voting system. Where (laughs) would you like them to get that money? Shameless plug for listeners. If you want to hear more about election administration, we talked last week with Tiana Epps Johnson on exactly this issue and the need to super fund election infrastructure because I think it's like the least sexy, most important way that we spend our money as as like a federal budget. But she's great. Full uh, (laughs) endorsement of Tiana. One more question about Texas. You know, bleeding up to 2020, there was this whole exciting, like high hopes conversation on the Democratic side about like, this will be the year we turn Texas blue. We know we needed to flip nine seats in the Texas state house. We didn't flip any. In fact, I think we lost one. I think we lost I one. believe two. Two. When you look at the long-term scale of elections in Texas over the next decade, is there any hope? Is it so long? Farewell. Good luck to Texas well, Democrats. You know, I mean, I think that, that I think that Democrats should not necessarily lose hope. Here's the thing about Texas. Nobody here votes. And then also that the advocacy around voting rights here is a little bit different. And I had a really fascinating conversation with Rafael and Chia, who is the head of the Mexican-American Legislative Mm -hmm. Caucus in the House and is in D.C. right now. And he said to me, the population that is fighting for voting in Texas is young, new immigrant, probably wasn't even alive or in the country during the civil rights movement, right? Yeah. So in places like Georgia, it is, I'm not going to say easy, right? But it is like easier to whip up justified frenzy. It's a legacy fight for Georgians. It's a legacy fight. Like Rafael Anchia told me, he was like, it's baked into their DNA there. Yeah. It's not baked into Texas's DNA. There hasn't really been in Texas some major civil rights push that everyone is aware of. And places like Georgia and Alabama seem so different because the population is so different and the struggles there are result in the same ends but come from very different places. And so I think that we're starting to see a movement of Texans that realize the significance of this because they are perhaps the children of immigrants Mm -hmm. and watch their parents not be able to vote. I think that the phase of Texans being viscerally concerned about voting rights is starting right now. And so this is a little bit of a nascent fight. And we have a big hurdle to jump, which is that less than 50% of registered Texans vote Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. It's not only that there are people who can't register to vote and should be. It is that there are people who are registered, legally able to vote, would not face a problem voting, and still do not. Yeah. And so I think we have a two-part fight before 
we're going to see any real political change, but I see it happening. Stick around for more of my conversation with Jessica Hoosman. Battleground is back with Jessica Hoosman from VoteBeat. I want to change gears a little bit and talk about VoteBeat because I think it's so interesting what you guys have set up. You're doing the journalism version of Run for Something, which I fucking love, which is just understanding that the real power comes on the local level and that the more you get good people there to engage in the process, the better ultimately the outcomes will be. And one of the things I particularly appreciate about what you guys are trying to do is the impact that local coverage, whether it's of elections or writ large, can have on democracy. And I remember reading a study about how when local news outlets disappear, which something like 25% of local journalism jobs have disappeared in the last 12 or 13 years, fewer people run for mayor. Fewer people participate in local elections. Yeah. There are less productive city councils and state legislators from those areas. Like, in every measurable way, democracy suffers when there's less local journalism. Absolutely. And at the same time, it feels like there is an overload of information. Right. Like, anyone who's scrolling through Twitter or watching TV or just, like, looking at your, like, push alerts on your phone, it's so much. And, you know, I mean... This is not the verbal version of a subtweet of anyone. I'm just saying that national journalists are really bad at parachuting in mm-hmm. to local places and covering them. And sometimes I feel like this gives the appearance of local news and doesn't make the problem of news deserts seem as acute when it in fact is. It's sad to see there be some places where local news is thriving and doing really well and people understand the inherent value of it. Then there are places that just have nothing. And I think what it does is it, you know, you read the paper and you figure out what you care about and you get excited about it. And that's why you run for mayor. Because most people aren't going to show up to a city council meeting. They're going to read it in the newspaper. And this is actually a really important point that I always try to make with reporters who I do election administration training with is that the media is part of election administration. We do not cover election administration because how many people are going to the Secretary of State's website to read the candidate bio? They're not. They're going to the local newspaper site. How many people are looking up the positions of the mayor, like on the mayor's campaign website. Not many. Mm -hmm. They're going to the media for registration information, for how to comply with the voter ID law. They're reading explainers in the Texas Tribune on how to do that. We need to see ourselves as part of the process, which also means that we need to recognize that we can disenfranchise people. And we do. And news deserts, I think, add to that problem significantly, but also media poorly understanding election administration rules and then giving bad information to the public about how to adhere to those rules disenfranchises a lot of people. And when Texas implemented the voter ID law in 2016, you could see it. Yeah. Like you could see the misunderstandings that were entirely the fault of terrible headlines and bad nut graphs and articles. Do you consider your role as a journalist covering election administration as democracy building work? You know, journalism is literally enshrined in the Constitution. Voting isn't, but journalism is. (laughs) Like, you know, the founders, like, I know I just spent a long time shitting on the founders, but like the founders envisioned a very specific role for journalists and the press in the activities of government. Like our 
job is enshrined in the Constitution so that people know how to vote and like how to participate in society. If you don't understand the society you live in, you can't really participate in it. And that's a service that journalism should be providing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, yeah, like vote beat, we think voting is good. And we think that voting should be secure and accessible to eligible voters. And we start from that premise. And so if it is less secure or makes it less accessible to voters for some reason that is not justified in any way, then we can just full-throatedly say that because I think that that's the truth, right? Like at some point, we all have to rally around a common definition of what voting should be and is. And because the rest of the country hasn't, we have. And that's the only way to do journalism well here, right? Because if you come at it from, you know, should we tell people to vote? Is that too political? We're journalists. Like, I think that's gross. Like, don't tell them who to vote for. I will never tell you who to vote for. I don't give a shit who you vote for. I just want you to be able to do it. And I want you to vote and have that be an affirming process that was not negative and you didn't come out feeling like you committed a crime. That doesn't seem like a very high bar to jump over. And so I think that there is a need for journalists to deeply understand the mechanics of elections, to deeply understand election technology and cybersecurity, and to understand in a really factual, historical way the context in which we're living and put that into the stories. And if we did, it wouldn't be like a new thing that everybody's really concerned about voting rights all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It's been so interesting to watch since Donald Trump got elected and made voting and the integrity therein a key shitpost of his time. Everybody's like, oh shit, voting is under attack. Like I I think Biden's running around calling this Jim Crow 2.0 and the biggest threat to democracy since the Civil War. And I'm just sort of like, where have you been for the last two decades? Texas has been restricting voting rights every legislative cycle since 1995. And so for Democrats to stand up there and be like, right now is the biggest threat to democracy we've ever faced. I'm just like, too late. It is too late. If you'd picked these battles, if you'd recognize the importance of what state legislators were doing in 2000, in 2004, in 2008, then we wouldn't be where we are right now. But Donald Trump made voting sexy. And so now it's the end of the damn world. And it blows my mind. It makes me so angry, Jessica. It makes me so mad because it's like the best time to have given a shit about this was 20 years ago. And so now we're trying to like pass federal policy that somehow solves all of these very disparate problems and wouldn't get through a filibuster anyway. I mean, like we have put ourselves in this position Mm -hmm. by choosing to ignore everything else. And I'm glad that we've arrived at a place where we're paying attention to voting and we're giving real thought to voting machines and technology and funding those offices in a little bit more of a meaningful way. Like that definitely needs to happen. And I'm really excited to see that happen. It's bittersweet because I know that if it had happened 20 years ago, everything that's happened in the last four years, the deep distrust in the Republican Party in the election system, which I think is very dangerous and frankly, very sad for those voters. We could have dealt with this before now. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but at the very least, I think VoteBeat is doing amazing work keeping Thank it in you. the news now, both personally and professionally. I think it's critical what you guys are covering, and I'm so glad you were able to join us to talk about it today. Thank you. I was thrilled to be here. It was very fun. 
Thank you so much to Jessica Hoosman for joining me on Battleground this week and for really schooling me on the history of voting rights in America. If there is someone you think we should have on Battleground or a topic you'd like us to cover or just some thoughts and feelings about how the show's been going, leave us a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Vassell is our executive producer. <laughs>